the entire chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse one to verse 13. This is what Holy Scripture says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Some people have described the Bible <clears throat> as, a, uh, as a love story. The message of the Bible is in itself a love story. Uh, I just did a quick search. This is non-scientific, non-exegetical, just a word search on the ESV website. Looked up the word uh, grace. The word grace occurs 122 times in the Bible in the English Standard Version. Looked up the word mercy occurs 153 times in the English Standard Version, and then looked up the word love. And the word love occurs 503 times, five, five times greater than even mercy and grace. And what's more, besides these occurrences of the actual word love, or all these places where uh, the actions of love are called for or described without ever using the word love, we have seen over the last several weeks, love one another, love the Lord your God, uh, love even your enemy. There is no verse in the Bible that says, love the weak. But the message of the Bible certainly communicates that. And that's what we would like to look at today. My goal this day is to convince you that loving the weak is not only essential, but it's actually world-changing kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's vital. It's what our world needs. For instance, think about children. They're classified as the weak. A recent study out of the Center for Disease Control in the United States came to this conclusion. 20% of Americans were molested as a child. 
One out of eight children witness their mother being hit or beaten. It's estimated there are 12 million, 12 million American women who have been raped. Over 50% of those rapes occurred before the age of 15. This is an American study. I assume the numbers would hold relatively true in Canada. But you compare this, friends, and the the horridness of that trauma on those little lives, you compare that to Jesus. The children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, you know the words, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and they went away. Like the old song says, Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loved all the weak. So let's begin by some definitions. First of all, what do we mean by the weak? Well, by the weak, we mean the impoverished, the destitute, the marginalized, the the neglected, the poor, the disabled, the traumatized, the severely mentally ill. It's the people in our church and in our broader society who are likely to get the short end of the stick. They're the ones that are going to be ignored, the ones who will never truly get justice, the ones who have all the odds stacked against them. In, in the case of your Bible, at least in the Old Testament, this this category of people is summarized in that familiar triad of orphans, widows, and immigrants. So listen to the words of Exodus 22. This is Exodus 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner, that's an immigrant, or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives, your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. This is God speaking. See something similar in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. What I find interesting in both of these verses, and there are many more in your Old Testament, What I find interesting here is how God leverages the hypocrisy or the potential hypocrisy of Israel. (laughs) He looks to Israel and says, out of all the nations in the world, who are you to harm or to neglect the weak, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant? How could it be you? Because you were the weakest of all nations. Remember Deuteronomy 6? You were the smallest of all the peoples. Not only that, you're enslaved immigrants in a foreign land of Egypt. That's who you were until I rescued you. You, Israel, you had firsthand experience of the misery of weakness. And of all people, you should abhor inflicting that on anyone else. It should be your joy to serve those who are weak, because you know what it's like to be weak. 
And yet Israel was prone to forget and prone to neglect the weak. And frankly, friends, I think we're a lot like Israel of old. When it comes to the weak, we tend to have a substandard theology of providence. Here's what I mean. Instead of loving the immigrant, we think things like, you know, he should have stayed in his own country, not considering that he very well likely might have been killed if he had stayed there. Instead of loving the orphan, we think, you know, those parents never should have committed sexual immorality that brought that person into the world, rather than rejoicing that that person is alive. Instead of loving the widow, we think she should just get remarried and not, and and we don't want to have to joyfully help her in all the ways that we can. Instead of loving the disabled, we wonder, I wonder what sins those parents committed when we could be building a friendship with her. Instead of loving the poor, we think, you know, they should just work harder, not realizing all the help we have had providentially to get going in life. Solomon said, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. (laughs) Let me show you something I find very interesting in your Bible. Uh, You don't need to turn there. Just listen, Deuteronomy 15 when, when Moses is telling Israel about going into the promised land, the, the land of milk and honey, where everything's good, he says to them, Deuteronomy 15, 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. In the promised land, there will never cease to be poor. Which sounds a whole lot like what Jesus said to his own disciples, Matthew 26, 11, for you will always have the poor with you. You will always have the poor with you. The weak will always be a part of your lives. Some people might even say that's by design. And we can make a very good case from our Bible that we are to love the weak, not just tolerate the weak, not just endure their presence, not just you know, let them into our church services, but then ignore them the rest of the week, but we are to love them. Okay, that takes me to question two. Why? Why must we love the weak? There's this really interesting point in the public ministry of Jesus when John the Baptist is in prison, Herod has imprisoned him for preaching the truth, and he's hearing reports of Jesus, and he begins to doubt. John the Baptist doubts that Jesus is the Messiah. John the Baptist doubts. But he did the right thing. It's Matthew 11, you can look at verse two. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John figures his days are numbered, I guess, and he's asking Jesus, are you the Messiah or are you not? Did I, when I said that whole thing about behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, was that a mistake? Was that not you? And listen to what Jesus answers, verse 4. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Isn't that interesting? 
Jesus does not send word back to John the Baptist in prison, pointing to the doctrinal content of his preaching. He points to the one thing that marks him out as the true Messiah. What's that one thing? He is focusing all of his ministry attention on the blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, the poor, and the dead. In other words, the weakest of the weak. If God is love and Jesus is God, then it follows that all of his actions flow out from a place of love. Jesus loved the weak. That's what marked him out as Messiah. That's what marks him out as God. And so the logic goes like this. We must love the weak because that's how we imitate God in the world. We love the weak because God loves the weak. The psalmist says in Psalm 146, don't put your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God says, this is my heart. My heart is inclined toward the weak. It's all over your Bible if you're willing to see it. The reason that you and I are to love the weak is because God loves the weak. Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christians are people who admit their own personal weakness, their spiritual weakness, and turn to Christ to save them from their many sins. We too were enslaved, not to some Egyptian taskmasters, but we were enslaved to sin and Satan. And we cried out to God in our weakness and in his love. He heard, he saw, he remembered, he knew. And then he acted in that pure love and he called us to himself. Is he calling you? If he is calling you, then run to him now. Run to him in deep, deep repentance. You can be assured that this is a God of love who is calling, not a God of of great judgment and wrath. It is true he will have wrath on all his enemies. He He will pour out his wrath in eternity forever against all those who rejected him in this life, in that place we call hell. That is true, but this God of wrath is a God of love, and he is extending love now. He's he's holding back his wrath out of his love, and he's inviting you to come. He says, come to me in repentance. Repentance may, may feel to you like a very difficult thing, even a very harsh thing for you to have to do, but it's in love that he calls you to repent because he loves the sinner. He loves you. He loves the weak. And so he says, come. And once you do, and once you are embracing Christ as your Savior, once you lay your hands of faith on Jesus as the only way for you to be right with God, From that moment forward, he calls on you to copy him and to love all the other weak people just like you. That takes me to number three. How can we love the weak? Well, like all sanctification, it begins in the mind. You have to know truth, and truth changes how you live. 
It starts in your mind and then it changes your actions. So the first thing that must happen is you must accurately value the weak. You must accurately value the weak. First Corinthians chapter 13, which Steve read for us earlier in our service, that's a chapter devoted entirely to love. People like it read at their weddings. But it's, it's centered in between two chapters that are talking about relationships within the church. And it's radiating both backward and forward so that we understand in chapter 12 and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, this is, this is how love works itself out. So in chapter 12, we're talking about um, the unity of the body, and, and, and then in chapter 14, more about particular gifts that the Spirit gives for the, the building up of the body, but it's all centered on chapter 13, which we've already read. Now, we've, we've read and looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 a bunch of times in this church. Uh, it's, it's that part of, of Paul's letter where he's comparing the local church to a human body. And just like a human body has many parts and it needs all those parts in order to function properly, he's saying that's, that's what the church is like. It's made up of all these different parts. And some of those parts of the human body are weaker than other parts. And Paul is teaching us there that if we're really like Christ, we will love those weaker parts. So in chapter 12, you're not going to hear the word love, but love is all over this chapter. We know that because of chapter 13, the one that comes next. So keep chapter 13 in mind. Love is patient. Love is kind. Keep that in mind as I read to you from 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 21. This is where he's picking up the argument of the the church is like a human body. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. The weakest parts need to care for the strongest parts. The strongest parts need to care for the weakest parts. So there is no pecking order of value in the local church. The poor get just as much love as the rich. The weak get as much love as the strong. But in a sense, that's not quite right. The weak and the poor get more love than the strong and the rich because that's what unifies the entire body. So the first way that we love the weak in the church is we view them, in the words of this text, as indispensable. We give them greater honor We prepare to treat them with more modesty, which I think is the idea that that we just, we have sort of a a wider berth, 
uh, we're going to put up with a little more. We're going to have a greater love that covers a multitude of sins because in your weakness, maybe you can't operate the way the rest of us have figured out how to operate in society in a presentable way. That's a little unpresentable, but we've got grace and love for that. In other words, we decide in our minds that we're going to live together with the weak like we need them. Like you need the weaker parts of your own human body. This is describing an attitude, an evaluation, a way of thinking about other people. And it has to start there. It has to start in the mind. You have to stop viewing the weak as a burden, as an uninvited guest, as a, as a tax on resources. The poor you will always have with you. And we are to always love them. So that begins with with how we value the weak, how we look at them, our mental posture toward them. The second way that we love the weak is this. We actually, and that word is very purposeful, we actually get involved in the lives of the weak. We actually get involved. So the key verse here is another letter of Paul when he's talking about love. Look at Romans chapter 12. This would be a good one for you to open your Bible and look at. Romans 12, verse 16. Short little verse, but let me just kind of unpack it a bit for you. This, this verse, in a way, begins where 1 first, first Corinthians 12 left off. It, it, we've been talking about mindset, how we think about the weak. In this case, the, the weak here are described as the lowly, Romans 12, 16. So the verse says this, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, arrogant, proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You got three sentences in this one verse. Sentence one and sentence three kind of make up the bread of a sandwich. The meat of the sandwich is that middle sentence made of two phrases, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Now, what the ESV translates here as live in harmony with, some other English versions translate it more like this. Here's the New American Standard. Uh, Be of the same mind toward one another. Live in harmony with, be of the same mind toward one another. Why does the other version say be of the same mind toward one another? Well, it's translating the word there a little less metaphorically. So, Live in harmony is, is the end idea, but the actual words that Paul uses here, um, it's, it's a mind word, one that's addressing thinking. It talk, it's a very interesting word. It talks about forming and holding an opinion. In other words, it's to think in a way that informs your actions. Think in a way that, that informs your actions. And so th- here he's saying, Think in a way that promotes harmony, that promotes unity with every other member of the church. And that's basically these, this thinking category, how the, the other piece of bread in the sandwich here, when he says, never be wise in your own sight. In other words, Paul's saying, don't live by gut instinct. Don't just like love the people that are easy for you to love. Don't decide how to live your life just by what feels good. Never be wise in your own sight. Live by truth that informs your mind so that your mind can dictate what your actions are going to do. And so these two phrases, one at the start, one at the end, they form, that's the bread, right? Loving the weak 
requires a change of mind, a change of thinking, a decision to look at others in a certain way. And that mental shift will ignite certain actions. Once you're thinking correctly, once the truth has changed how you think, you're going to live a different way. So what is the action that is called for here? What should we be doing with the lowly? It's found in that meat of the sandwich, the middle sentence. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. There's there's a stop and a start there, a do and a do not. Stop being arrogant. Do not be haughty. Don't think so much of yourself that you place yourself above other people and say, well, I, I don't have anything to do with you. You don't do anything for me, so I'll just be over here I'm looking for somebody who's going to make me feel good about me. (laughs) Do not be that. But, strong adversative, associate with the lowly. Start getting your hands dirty and associate with the lowly. Associate means, um, it's, it's, (laughs) the only English equivalent I'd come up with would be this. Be carried away with the lowly. It's not the word fellowship. You might think, oh, it means like, you know, have fellowship with it. No, it means, it means be fixated on the lowly. Be carried away with it. Kids, I don't know what it's like for you. Sometimes when I would get a new Lego, like a new Lego set, like that is all I wanted to do. I was fixated on Lego. Or maybe you get a new video game and you're like, I... I could miss all meals for the next three days because I got to get Zelda to wherever. Like, we get fixated on things. That's what he's talking about here. He says, be consumed with the lowly. In other words, to love the lowly, to love the weak, you have to have this remarkable commitment, this remarkable level of interest in their lives. You have to be consumed with the lowly. This is how you love the weak. You get involved. Don't just deliver meals. You, you do relationship with them. That is authentic, genuine love for the weakest of all. You bring them into your life. So, by God's providence, I've spent part of my life around the disabled community, and I have noticed that what my disabled friends most often lack is a friend. Someone who understands they're not going to have the same level of reciprocity of interest and kindness as you might expect from your more typically developed other human being, but the kind of person who's just going to have this steadfast interest in this disabled person. You may have noticed that at Grace Fellowship Church, we do not have a disability ministry. That's by design because you are the disability ministry. Most of the disabled I know don't want to be in a segregated class down in the basement every week. They want people to call them up, and if they're capable, they want somebody to chuck a ball with them or just someone to do something with them or even just to get bored with them, to shoot the breeze. In other words, they just want you to do what you do with your friends, to love them. And I would argue this is why it is true gospel love, because with the disabled, you may never get anything out of it. Nothing may come back to you that blesses you. 
Your love for your disabled friend may just be endless cost for you. Kind of like God's love for you. The psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk in a 2014 book, The Body Keeps the Score, made this observation. Being able to feel safe with other people is probably the single most important aspect of mental health. Being able to feel safe with other people. That quote came to mind, in my mind this week, as I was reading just in my own devotions, uh, Matthew 19, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And, And it struck me. I thought, you know, mothers brought their children to Jesus. The weak brought the lowly to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was safe. He was safe. He loved them. He always acted in love. Are you safe to be around? Well, people know that no matter what you do, what you say, that you're going to love them. My dear friends, if we're going to be like God, we're going to love the weak. We're going to get involved in the lives of people that are very different from us, that cost us things, and we're going to stay there, and we're going to honor them, and we're going to look at them as eternal souls, not objects that will fulfill what we want to get out of life or get in our way if they don't fulfill those wishes. Would young mothers feel free to bring their little infants to you, to be blessed and prayed for, to be loved? Let's be a church that unswervingly loves the weak. May God make it so. Amen.